It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of violence, war, and trauma. Please take care when listening. It's wintertime in Kabul, Afghanistan, early 2021. And 15-year-old Baran spent her break from school binge-watching the TV series Prison Break. I watched it three times because I really love it. At first, she watched it dubbed in Persian. But then she had an idea. She wondered if she could teach herself English by watching the show. I can't help wondering what someone with your credentials is doing in a place like this. Took a wrong turn a few months back, I guess. She knew the story well. The main character, a structural engineer, makes an elaborate plan to get himself into prison just so he can break his older brother out. He even has the blueprints for the prison facility tattooed onto his upper body. Michael. Why? I'm getting you out of here. I really like that character. He is very smart and he thinks about all the things. And that was the reason that I kind of, I learned English. But she had no way of knowing how much she would need English in just a few months. Baran is not her real name. She asked that we use a pseudonym to protect her family. Back in the 90s, the Taliban beat up her father and broke his back because he was training women to work in the medical field. The family fled to Iran for several years. But Baran was born after American forces and allies occupied Afghanistan and ousted the Taliban from power. Her family decided it was safe and moved back to the country. Now it's a good place, Afghanistan. It's good for living. We come back to our country. She wanted to be a doctor like her father. She had every reason to believe she could achieve her goal, and she was in a hurry. Baran finished high school two years early, but she never got to attend her graduation ceremony or take the exam to get into medical school. By August 2021, all of her plans evaporated. The Taliban is in downtown like driving, but there is no one to stop them. Suicide bombings just outside the Kabul airport have killed dozens. Suddenly, the focus was on escape and survival. The Americans were withdrawing from Afghanistan, and Baran found herself at the Kabul airport, one of many Afghans desperate for a way out. For five days, they waited on the street outside the airport. Baran, her parents, her 31-year-old sister, her two older brothers, their wives, and kids. All Afghanistan came to the airport to enter to the gate, uh, and it was very crowded. Everybody lost each other. And then the gates opened. As they pressed forward, Baran's sister was carrying her four-year-old niece, their brother's daughter, and they were knocked to the ground. They managed to get up before they were crushed. They made it through the gates. But when Baran looked around, several family members were not there. And when we entered to the gate, we lost our parents. One of their brothers and his wife, the niece's parents, didn't make it either. But the authorities pushed them forward. They couldn't wait, and there was no going back. They flew to Qatar, hoping the rest of the family would follow. 
They ended up at a makeshift military camp in New Jersey, where they spent several weeks. It was there that Baran celebrated her 16th birthday. One morning at 5 a.m., Baran, her sister, and niece woke up in the dark, skipping breakfast to get on an airplane, having no idea that they had two stopovers and would be traveling all day and into the night. The four-year-old begged to eat the food she saw in the airport restaurants, but the only money they had was Afghani. By the time they arrived at their final destination in Salt Lake City, there was a snowstorm. The first night that we came to Utah, it was a very horrible situation. It was 1 a.m. A caseworker from a resettlement agency drove them through streets covered in snow and brought them to an apartment close to downtown. When he opened the door and when he entered to the house, it was very cold and it was a snowy weather. There was no power, no heat. And this apartment was dark, completely dark. Baran tried to recall the English she had learned from watching Prison Break. But that night, standing in the dark room, she couldn't find the words to communicate with the caseworker. Even I couldn't talk with our caseworker that how we can turn on the heat, how we can turn on the lights. Even we don't have the phone to call him that come here. They asked the caseworker to come back the next day. He said he would be back the next week. And then he left. My niece, she started crying and she said that I don't want to be in here. And then they were all crying. There was a chair with a box of household items, toiletries and laundry soap stacked in the middle of the living room and some food in the kitchen left by the agency. Their niece was hungry. They'd been traveling all day without a meal. Without power, they couldn't cook, so they gave her a glass of milk and some bread. As women alone, they didn't feel safe. The lock wasn't working, so they pushed a table against the door. Before they left Afghanistan, they had never spent a night without their family. They were all alone in a strange land. And my sister said, so what should we do? We want to go back to the airport and I want to sit there. At least there's a kind of people, there's a population. If we live in here with this kind of situation, I want to come back to Afghanistan. If there's a Taliban, it's okay. Just I want to go back. They were so scared, Baran's sister thought it might be better to risk living under the Taliban. At least their family would be together. News about Afghanistan once dominated the headlines. Now it's disappeared from our feeds. But this story isn't over. What will happen for Baran and her family? That will depend on people like you and me. The global forces and political choices that created this situation are beyond our individual control. But how we respond will test who we are and how we define community. On this podcast, we're going to follow people after the evacuation is over and they've arrived at their destination. Who will emerge to help these new neighbors? How are we connected to strangers from halfway across the world? And what does it mean to be part of a community? From KSL Podcasts, I'm journalist Andrea Smartin, and this is Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Episode one, welcome to your new home. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. 
it was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the spring of 1994, a refugee arrived with his wife and three-year-old son at the Salt Lake City Airport, not knowing what to expect from this strange new land called Utah. Right from the beginning, when I get off the plane and we came to the gate, so many people were there who wanted to welcome us. Aidan Batar is from Somalia. Everyone just calls him by his last name. He and his family were greeted by a big crowd family members, staff from a resettlement agency, and volunteers. I have never seen such a welcoming in my whole life. Uh, my wife and I, we looked at it and said, wow, this, is, this must be a very welcoming community. And the welcome continued as the crowd took them to their new home that was waiting for them. Had everything we needed, beds, furnishings, even warm meal was on the table, on the dining table, and we were all overwhelmed with this, all this hospitality and, and welcoming that we have received. From that moment, I knew that, you know, this is the place for us. Okay, so Batar's first day in Utah was the polar opposite of what we heard from 16-year-old Baran. You might be wondering why. Well, that's what we're going to find out in this episode. How is the situation different for the newest arrivals to our communities? And what kind of neighbors are we? Getting back to Batar's story, he and his family settled in the small farming town of Logan in northern Utah, surrounded by fields of alfalfa and cattle. The Somali family stood out. They didn't have many refugees, you know, during that time. And everybody who stops us on the, on the street used to ask us, where are you from? Hello, what's your name? They were curious. People were very interested in getting to know us and also wanting to help. People offered him rides when he didn't have a car. He was given a job. And his four children had educational opportunities far better than they could have had in Somalia or in a refugee camp. Batar's experience was so positive, he decided to work for a resettlement agency, Catholic Community Services of Utah. He's been with them for more than 20 years and is now the Director of Migration and Refugee Services. Utahns like to say this is a welcoming place for refugees and immigrants. Utah has always been a hospitable community for newcomers. Salt Lake County is getting national attention for helping immigrants find resources to succeed. And it's the first county in the U.S. to get this recognition. We really just want to make sure everyone knows that they have a seat at our table here in Utah. I myself arrived as an outsider to Salt Lake more than a decade ago, though I was only moving from Boston, not a foreign country. But as someone who is not religious, I did feel like a stranger here, learning the ways of a new culture. 
It took me a while to understand why this red state is so interested in refugees. There are only about 3.5 million people in all of Utah, but Salt Lake City ranks in the top 15 U.S. cities for number of refugees per capita. One big factor, more than 60% of the state's population are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We, as members of the church, we take it seriously, the call to welcome the stranger. That's Marinda Cutler, part of an organization called Mormon Women for Ethical Government, a nonpartisan group that I should say doesn't officially represent the church. Concern about immigration policies was one of the big reasons the founders started the organization in January 2017. Marinda's role is immigration advocacy manager. There's a lot of scriptures in the Bible about welcoming the stranger, and our modern church has invited us to do that, too. We have that spiritual mandate that we feel the call. Beyond this spiritual mandate, members of the church identify with refugees. Governor Spencer Cox points out that a history of persecution drove them to travel west and settle on the land that we now call Utah. It's part of our history, for sure. My, my own great-great-great-grandparents had their home burned to the ground because of religious beliefs and, and fled to come here to seek refuge. So given all of this, when Afghanistan was being evacuated, it's perhaps not surprising that Republican Governor Cox was one of the first to send a letter to President Biden to volunteer the state as a place for Afghans to restart their lives. For the last week, the governor tells me his office has been getting calls nonstop with Utahns wanting to help. It's why that decision to step up and offer Utah as a safe haven was a simple one. Uh, Republicans and Democrats and unaffiliateds in the state, everyone that I've talked to just has, has thanked us. I mean, legislators, mayors, county commissioners, um, citizens. It wasn't just Utah. Across the country, there was widespread support for Afghan refugees. According to an NPR Ipsos poll, seven out of 10 Americans supported resettling Afghans who worked with the U.S. government or military. Even among Republicans and older white rural voters, people who generally tend to support hardline immigration policies. And even in these groups, we found a lot of support for Afghan resettlement. That level of support is unusual. During World War II, the U.S. turned away thousands of Europeans seeking refuge. In 1938, after the Nazis began attacking Jews, a Gallup poll asked if the U.S. should allow a larger number of Jewish exiles here. 72% of Americans said no. Even at the height of the war, President Franklin Roosevelt and other government officials essentially closed the border, arguing that refugees from an enemy state posed a serious threat to national security. At that time, resettlement was largely managed by private citizens and organizations. Government support was inconsistent and ad hoc. But after the fall of Vietnam in 1975, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees to resettle. Congress realized it needed to create standardized procedures, passing the Refugee Act of 1980, establishing the system we have now, with the federal government controlling the flow and local nonprofit agencies doing the resettlement work on the ground. Batar of Catholic Community Services says the country has successfully resettled many refugees during global crises, over three million seeking asylum since 1980. You know, this is not new to us. We have seen a large number of refugees coming into our country, regardless of who is in the office, in the administration. 
Whether it was a Republican or Democrat in the Oval Office, the U.S. was accepting 95,000 refugees a year on average. But suddenly, Batar says, everything changed. The United States will not be a migrant camp, and it will not be a refugee-holding facility. Won't be. In 2018, President Trump set the cap on refugees at 45,000, cutting by more than half the average number allowed. The following year, it was 30,000. Then the next year, it dropped to 18,000 refugees, a historic low since the program was established after the Vietnam War. The whole program basically was shut down. Uh, Not only that, uh, even the infrastructure of the program was, uh, you know, destroyed. The next year, Mr. Trump dropped the cap to 15,000. Then, when President Biden took office, those restrictions were lifted. After several years of downsizing and record low numbers, suddenly the agencies had to turn the ship around and prepare for refugees again. They started ramping up operations, training people, hiring staff. They thought they'd be ready. But we weren't expecting so sudden about the Afghan crisis. Nobody could have predicted some 80,000 Afghans would arrive all at once when the resettlement agencies were trying to recover. That's the largest number of wartime evacuees the U.S. had seen since the fall of Saigon. And they were coming during a pandemic, a severe affordable housing shortage and a tight labor market. So I think this is a big challenge. We only had few staff left that we were operating under. And now with all this influx, uh, you know, we need to build our capacity back up. Utah was expecting more than 800 Afghans on top of the regular roster of refugees. Two agencies, Catholic Community Services, along with the International Rescue Committee, each with a handful of caseworkers, had to figure out how to resettle all of the new arrivals in a short time frame. And Batar says these Afghans were not following the path of traditional refugees who would normally live in a camp for years before arriving at their destination in the U.S. Before, uh, you know, this crisis, we have enough time of, uh, for example, when a family is coming to Utah, we would know like ahead of time. So in that way, we prepare for their housing and everything. But with the Afghan situation, it's completely different and uh, everything is very quick. Uh, we get a notification of families arriving today, and the family will be here at the airport today. You get 24 hours or less Or notice. less notice. Sometimes a couple hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're on the plane. They're on the way there. And get ready. Send, send your case manager out <laughs> to the yeah. airport. Yeah, it is, it is very uh, very stressful situation. And uh, when the families are arriving, they need a lot of support. The welcoming crowd that Batar received on his first day in Utah more than 25 years ago, the furnished home with a warm meal on the table, that's like a pipe dream for these new arrivals. This conversation with Batar happened as the Afghans were just starting to arrive. In a couple months, 16-year-old Baran and her family would be arriving during a snowstorm. One caseworker told me they were expecting new Afghans to arrive every day, So they would be doing constant pickups at the airport on top of everything else they were doing to resettle refugees. Finding homes, helping them access food, health care, legal counsel, transportation, English classes, work permits, getting the kids enrolled in school. And many of these meetings would require someone to translate. 
it seems an impossible task. I think Catholic community services alone cannot meet all the need of these families. These folks need friends in order for them to be successfully integrated into our community. Will anyone step forward to help? That's after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes in life, we're faced with tough choices, and the path forward isn't always clear. My first instinct is often to handle it on my own. But I've learned over and over that life goes better when you get help. Whether you're dealing with decisions around career, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence. The benefits are clear. But for me, the hardest part has been taking the steps to fit therapy into my life. So it's really helpful when it's easy to access. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash neighbor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash neighbor. In August 2021, while then 15-year-old Baran was waiting on the streets of Kabul for the gates to open at the airport, halfway across the world, a woman sat on a sofa in her air-conditioned home in a suburb of Salt Lake City, watching it unfold on the news. She saw people trying to scale the walls covered in barbed wire, families crushed in the crowds and separated. Azim shared video of his wife at a Taliban checkpoint where he says she was tear-gassed and beaten. People crowding around a massive U.S. Air Force transport plane as it starts down the runway. Some even managing to hold onto the wings as it lifts. Then bodies fall from the sky. For most of us, it's impossible to fathom how someone could be that desperate to escape. But she's seen this story before. In fact, she's lived it. What I saw in the news, it's kind of triggered my memory. Her name is Nazifa. She asked that we not use her last name. To this day, she's nervous about exposing her family. More than two decades ago, before the U.S. occupation, she also fled Afghanistan. Her family, part of a persecuted minority and a target of the Taliban. We escaped, uh, maybe not like through evacuation flights, but we went through the same route, you know, leave our home with nothing. It's a time in her life she prefers not to think about. But when the U.S. withdrew and Afghanistan fell back into the hands of the Taliban, it all came flooding back. She remembered the day her father never came home. We couldn't find his body. We were waiting when the Taliban was coming on our door looking for us. Nazifa, the oldest of six children, was 12 years old when her family crossed the border illegally into Pakistan. She remembered what it was like to be on the run, her family living in one room with one blanket among them, how she worked in a refugee hospital, and her younger siblings worked as carpet weavers just to keep the family alive. Sitting on a big, cushy chair in her living room, she lets herself go back to that time. I didn't go to school or anything, so I just worked 
survive. This is making you emotional. What yeah. what what is it bringing up for you? All of the hard work, you know, it's like the life that I have lived. I'm grateful for the experience. I think that is what made me really strong and that was, you know, why we worked so hard in here. So I want to be really independent educated and I never want to live for survival. Today, you could say Nazifa has achieved the American dream. She works as a risk analyst in the financial industry, a job that allowed her to buy a home in a nice neighborhood at the base of a mountain canyon. How she got there is another story that we'll get to in the next episode. Suffice it to say, she didn't do it alone. Right now, there are new arrivals from Afghanistan who need help more help than the resettlement agencies can provide. So she and others are stepping up to volunteer. Hi, I'm Andrea. Hi. Andrea, I'm Dane. Dane? On a sunny day in late fall 2021, I meet up with Nazifa and some of her neighbors in the parking lot of a hotel next to a busy road west of Salt Lake City. Nazifa's just getting there. Room number. room number, and then we'll go meet them. Okay. There's a new Afghan family living here temporarily. I met the husband at the mosque on Saturday, but um, I haven't met the kids and the wife, so we're going to ask them what can we do to help them. The resettlement agencies are careful not to release refugee contact information, except to volunteers who've already been trained and assigned specific tasks. But Nazifa feels like they can't cover all the needs of these families, so she's had to track them down herself. She's been meeting people at events organized by the Afghan-American community. I first met her at one of these gatherings at a mosque. She attracted my attention because she was translating and connecting people with resources, writing down names and phone numbers that she keeps in a small book. Today, she's brought some of her neighbors, who she only recently met, including Dane Smith. Nazifa came to our church. She lives just across the street from our church and just kind of alerted us to the needs. We were pretty anxious to help. We visited a few families two weeks ago, and so this will be our second group of families that we're visiting. Dane is well over six feet tall, easily more than a foot taller than Nazifa. I found out later he's a commercial airplane pilot. He's here with his mother-in-law and the head of a women's group in his church. All four of them, plus me with my recorder, troop into the hotel. Right. Hopefully we're not too big of a crowd. No, We're not going to overwhelm them. The Afghan father meets us in the lobby and takes us up the elevator to the room where his family of five is living. Hello. Hi. How are you? Pretty good. Tell me your name. My name is Yasser. Yasser is nine years old and seems to be the most fluent English speaker in the family. His older sister is 11 and his baby brother is toddling around in a onesie. Yasser's father explains that his son learned some English in school. Yasser pipes up, and Nazifa translates. <laughs> so in a camp, the kids were studying for an hour a day, but he went to ESL classes with his mom today, and he said he all of a sudden he learned English today. <laughs> if you didn't catch that, Yasser apparently learned English just today. Impressive. That's awesome. High five, man. That's pretty great. 
Nazifa confesses that she learned English in part by watching cartoons, especially SpongeBob SquarePants. I remember watching SpongeBob with my brother. <laughs> the family sits on two beds while the rest of us squeeze into chairs around the entryway. There's a small kitchenette by the door, one long bedroom, and a bathroom. It's a lot of people for a little stuffy hotel room. And I realized that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I haven't been so close with this many people in a while. I'm vaguely nervous that it's not a good idea, but we're doing it. Looking around, it hits me that everything they have in this room, a couple of bags of clothes, some diapers, one floral blanket from Afghanistan, a car seat, what most of us would take on a weekend trip, it's all they have. It doesn't take long before the toddler climbs into Dane's lap. Okay, I'm going to take notes just okay. so that we get everything we need to know. Okay. Do you want to ask him if they have been to the hospital yet? Dane sounds like he's in charge here, but the truth is he and the others, they're just regular citizens figuring this out as they go along, trying to identify where the professional agencies don't have the time and resources to meet the needs of these latest arrivals. With Nazifa translating and the father doing most of the talking, they learn that the family has been in the hotel for two weeks. Not a normal situation for refugees, who would usually be placed directly in a furnished home or apartment. But they're arriving with very little notice. And Dane says there's a shortage of affordable housing. So when they do get a home, they may not be near other Afghans. The unfortunate thing about that is that they end up being so spread out from each other when what they need is two things. They need their community that they're familiar with, and then they need people like us who can help them integrate into American society. They learn that the kids are not in school. The leader of the church women's organization says so she worked in the schools for decades, and that's not normal. They're supposed to be enrolled within like 24 to 48 hours, I think. No, some of the refugees I know, they're stuck in an apartment for two months, no school for the kids yet. Nazifa says some of the families she's talked to have been in a hotel for more than a month, sometimes as long as two months. They have been in a base 60 days, another 60 days in a hotel, kids no school. Well, and the men especially are so anxious to get out and work. Their top three things would be they want to make sure their family's taken care of. They want to feel productive and they want to integrate into our society. Like they're just they're just so hungry to do that. Dane points out that many of the men in these families have been working with American service members for years, in some cases risking their lives to do so. Nazifa says those who worked with the U.S. military also had good salaries in Afghanistan. They're not used to asking for charity and may not be comfortable with it. So a couple things I want to do now. I want to, if they feel comfortable with it, I'd like to look in their fridge and in their cupboards at their food, okay. see how much they have. And then I'd love to find out how they're doing on clothing, yeah. including like underwear, socks, <laughs> uh, winter clothes, shoes. shoes. Dane goes into the kitchenette, opens the fridge and cupboards. They've got some infant some, Yeah, they have quite a bit of infant food. And then they have some, they have some meat. A little bit. Like, yeah, they have an like extra one day's right there. worth. Yeah. As Dane identifies what little food is in the fridge, I still can't quite wrap my mind around how you would live like this in a hotel. How do you get food and prepare it for a family of five when you have no way of getting around? Even just doing laundry can be a complicated ordeal. 
Nazifa says she just met a family who hadn't washed their clothes for two months. Many of the machines don't take quarters. You need a cell phone and an app tied to a bank account in order to pay. To function in the modern world, Nazifa says they need phones, computers, and internet access. These are the things she worries about, while the resettlement agencies are scrambling just to get them housing and food. After more than an hour of talking, they've determined that the family needs more food, winter clothes, laundry detergent, and a teapot. Uh, the next step is it sounds like we want to have a, probably a, a family, find a family that can sponsor them. They're thinking that a family from the church could sponsor them, take them shopping, and buy them what they need. But Dane's mother-in-law is already raising her hand to volunteer herself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you want to? Yes. Great. Yes. Um, As so the group gets ready to leave, nine-year-old Yasser holds up a picture he's been working on in his notebook. It's a profile of a woman's face with a tear on her cheek. A drawing in shades of gray, except for some red tint on her lips and a bright red heart next to her face. Will, will you tell them that we're grateful that they're here? We know that they have suffered a lot. Yeah. And we can't make everything better. But we can make some things better. <laughs> and we will become great friends. Dane and the kids use the universal language of high fives and fist bumps. And the father scoops up the toddler, who blows a kiss. Standing at the door, Nazifa translates for the father. Um, he is thankful from the president that uh, helped him, you know, evacuate Afghanistan. And then he also second thankful from all the military bases that helped them through the process. And then thirdly, they're very thankful from all of you to visit them. Uh, and then they're also, fourthly, they're thanking me <laughs> to connecting everybody. <laughs> Goodbye, kids. We'll see you again, okay? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Outside in the parking lot, before they can rush off to the next family, I stop them. Why do you guys want to do this? Why do you want to spend your afternoons here? Oof. Let me take a deep breath. Um, we, When we saw the pictures and the videos coming out of Afghanistan, we prayed to be able to help them. Dane squints into the distance. Tears well up in his eyes. And this is like an answer to prayer, I think, for us. Um, I know that there's a lot of need uh, amongst people who already live here, but the, the need just seems so acute with, with those coming out of Afghanistan. And I, I think also we know that they served alongside our military men and women. And... Just knowing that there's a need present kind of makes us want to run to them. And you found your opening through Nazifa. Yeah, yeah. And she lived in our She's neighborhood. Our neighbor. Little did we know. What a blessing. <laughs> yep. You never know who your neighbor next door is. Yeah. Yeah, really. As they drive off to meet another family located about 20 minutes away, I think about how unlikely this whole situation is. How easy it would be for it not to happen. It took Nazifa, a former refugee who speaks the language, to track down this Afghan family, then visit the church in her neighborhood to get help. And there are hundreds more Afghans coming. 
like 16-year-old Baran, who arrived in the middle of a snowstorm to a cold, dark apartment, separated from family and without a friend. Even you couldn't say, hey, goodbye, or even without anything, just go. <laughs> go in a place that you don't have family, you don't know one, you can speak, different culture, everything is different. Baran thinks about her father left in Afghanistan and the way he lives his life. My father is actually so kind. I don't know why, but he is so kind. In Afghanistan, he said that every time, he said, you have to help your neighbors, everybody in our street, everybody that you meet, you have to help them. For example, if we cook something in our house, and he said that, don't keep it for ourselves. Go and get it to other people and help other people. Brown's father told her, maybe one day when you're struggling, someone will do that for you. You have to help others. One day, Allah send you someone to help you in a bad kind of situation. Coming up this season on Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens for Baran, her sister, and niece. For her family and many others, their experience will depend on the regular people who step in to fill the gaps. On this podcast, we'll follow some of our newest neighbors, as well as those who help them. As we uncover these relationships, we reveal the hidden ways we're connected. We'll hear from those who served in the military. There were people who served our country for over 10 years and saved countless American lives. A single mother who fought the Taliban in a secret unit of Afghan special forces. These women, they're from Afghanistan against all odds, joined the military, joined the special forces, and then like fought for their freedom alongside U.S. soldiers, which is more than 99% of Americans can say. But even those who risk their lives with Americans are not safe from job losses and eviction notices. I cannot imagine like being whoever evicts them, like the manager or whoever's job it is to roll the rugs up and throw them out into the street. I can't imagine actually, like, going through with that. For many, their status in this country is uncertain. It really is having another person's life in your hands. If they don't get approved for asylum, they would be sent back to Afghanistan. See, when I get a lot of stress, the only thing that can help me, I'm just crying. Mm. You're crying a lot? But what can one person realistically do to help? You want me to come when you deliver your baby. She's our mom. <laughs> you are both my mom and my best friend. They're like family, so I just do the things I would do for my family. With this ethos in the military, you're supposed to leave it better than you found it. This is the only way I know how to leave it better than I found it. You see your fates as tied together. They're completely intertwined at this point. We promised to be a welcoming community, but do we fulfill that promise? Stay with us on Stranger Becomes Neighbor to find out. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is researched, written, and hosted by me, Andrea Smartin. Audio production and sound design by Aaron Mason. Bonus content produced by Nina Ernest. Mixing and mastering by Trent Sell. Executive producer is Cheryl Worsley. My thanks to our editorial team, Amy Donaldson, Dave Colley, Ben Kiebrick, Josh Tilton, Ryan Meeks, Felix Bunnell, and Kellyanne Halverson. 
Special thanks to Tanya Vea, Stephanie Avis, Candice Madsen, and Matt Elgrim. Each week, we're releasing bonus content with extended interviews if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you're unable to subscribe and you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating and write a review. It really does help others to discover us. For pictures and more information, find us at StrangerBecomesNeighbor.com. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is a production of KSL Podcasts.